Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And a special welcome to those who are viewing us from the comfort of their recliners or maybe in bed with a cup of coffee and can't make it here. Our thoughts and prayers are with you, and we are blessed to have you join us wherever you may be in this still great nation we live in. I would imagine there are folks who are lots of roads away. There's a lot of roads right around us, and I would imagine that those watching today might have to jump on I-35 and come a long way, or maybe some other interstate highway system to get to where we are. <clears throat> but by the magic of technology, they can come right here, right there, through the screen, online. Back in the day, that was not the case. Back in the day of Christians living in Rome, all roads lead to Rome. I'm more than certain that you've heard that saying before. It's a very common saying. All words lead, all roads lead to Rome. That comes from a very French fable written by Saint Jean La Fontaine. The writer was observing 17th century France and what he observed in 17th century France that is exactly what the early Christians were experiencing in first century Rome. You see, Rome was this set of massive roadways, roadways everywhere. Everything came from road. All roads lead to Rome, thus all roads come from Rome. If you look at the very first picture in the package of images that you have today, <clears throat> these roads were marked with milestones spread outward from a single monument that Augustus erected very early on, and he set it in the front of the temple of Saturn. The remains of that are your picture before you. You notice at the bottom it says, Malarium Varium, that's Latin for the golden milestone. You don't see the upper part of that, but on that stone, a cylindrical stone that would have gone up into the sky in front of the temple of Saturn, Augustus would put the cities, the major cities of Rome, and the distances to them. It was the first map quest, the first Grand McNally, the first sign on the highway. 860 miles from San Antonio, or from one end of Texas to the other. When you drive in from Louisiana and you're going to go to El Paso, you go, oh my goodness, it's 860 miles. This would explain all those things, the distances of all the roads that led from the empire, the Roman Empire's network of roads. If you look at the second picture, it gives you kind of a picture of what another one of those signs would have looked like. The monument, you notice on the monument that it does have names and, and, and markings on there. That would be similar to what we would have seen in the, uh, in the Malarium Arium where it's still standing. Standing before that monument, one could see the extent of the Roman Empire, because Roman roads stretched outward and upward even to the Wall of Britain. They ran alongside the Rhine River and the Danube River and the Euphrates River. Roman roads stretched outward. They spoke of more than travel, much more than travel. They spoke of the might and power of the Roman Empire. Roman officials, anybody who was an official in Roman could go to any one of those cities in the system 
and be called to duty there. And the mighty army of Rome would be stationed along the way, camping out overnight along these roads, giving anybody who came by this vision of power, the mighty power of Rome that extended across the world. All those military people parked along the way, camping out, gave you a sense of the power. So if you stood on any Roman road, you would know the reach and the military might and the power of Rome. That's how impressive that would be because all roads lead to Rome. Now, your next picture. Grainy as it is, he stands there Along the Appian Way, another word for the Roman roads. Along the Appian Way. He's looking off into the distance. You see this in the picture. There is absolutely nothing about his features that would cause you to notice him. He looks like any other young Roman man. Clean shaven, wearing a toga, carrying a bucket of water, with a lamb wrapped around his shoulders. And yet, standing along the Appian Way, this man draws our attention not to the ways and the might and the power of Rome, but to the ways and the mercy and power of God. This one figure is the monument raised up by God for all peoples. Through him one receives God's mercy, and in him one responds to the powers of this world. So as we consider Paul's text in chapter 13 today, I want you to look at this text and envision this text through the eyes of that one figure. I want you to see God's action in mercy in Jesus and consider how he teaches us to respond to the powers of this world. And Lord knows we need to know how to respond to it today. This figure of a young Roman shepherd is one of the earliest pieces of Christian art. It stands along the Appian Way, but not above ground. It stands underground because it is a fresco painted on the walls of the catacombs of St. Calatus. It's a complex of tombs, you'll see in another picture. That complex of tombs that they know as the catacombs is your next picture. Reaching downward four levels and outward 12 miles. Above ground, this figure would call us and call to mind the life of Rome. But underground, where the earliest Christians buried their dead, this figure gives us a whole different version. This figure was painted years after Paul wrote this letter to the church at Rome. And in those ensuing years, things in Rome did not get better. It meant much worse for the Christians. The military power of Rome had claimed the Christians to be illegal. They turned against them. They persecuted them, killed them. They slaughtered them in sport. But somehow, our things in Rome kept getting darker For Christians, other things became clearer. These early Christians that suffered death and persecution and martyrdom began painting figures 
on the walls of their graves. That's picture number five for you. In the catacombs. Clear visions of God's mercy and of God's idea of power. You see, in the darkness of the catacombs, Christians painted with the light of salvation. Here in the tombs, early Christians buried their martyrs killed and cast off by the powers of the world. On the walls of these tombs, the early Christians painted their Savior, confessing the wonderful power of God, a power that claimed the persecuted, a power that claimed those who were killed and martyred, a power that claimed the powerless and those rejected in the world. This Roman figure, lamb across his shoulders, is the great shepherd of the sheep. This is how early Roman Christians retold that parable that you just heard in the gospel lesson for today. The 99 were left behind to secure and rescue the one. You see, Jesus sees their suffering Jesus comes to find them, to bind up their wounds, to gather them together and to give them the promise of everlasting life. Taking them upon his shoulders, he raises and will raise them up to bring them to a new creation, a creation that has no end. Here in these mazes of death, in the darkness of these catacombs, the early Christians found a way to confess Jesus as the only way the only truth, and the only life. Jesus is the one who has come to save God's people, and he calls his people to follow him. Take a look at picture three again of that young Roman shepherd. When you look closer at this admittedly grainy fresco, since it's very old, as were the walls, you might notice something interesting. I mean, you might notice something that's not there. Whoever painted this, whatever Christian painted this, did not attempt to offer a realistic picture of Jesus, did he? He can't recognize Jesus in this figure. He's not a bearded Palestinian. He doesn't have any halo over his head. There are no wounds in his hands or his side. It's just a picture of a Roman, a clean-shaven, toga-wearing Roman young man carrying a lamb on his shoulders. And why is that important? Because what the earliest Christians in the darkness understood is the way you recognize Jesus is not by the way he looks. You recognize him by what he does. He claims people in everlasting love and he promises to return and bring his people into a new creation. In the light of this world, Jesus may not look like much of a ruler, but in the darkness, Jesus reveals his power. Look around you today. His promise of everlasting life, a world without end, is the same today. Does he look powerful right now to us today? Does he seem very powerful in our world today? Crowds are not following him. Authority figures and rulers are not bending their knees before him. And yet, he remains the savior of this world. 
Though our world rejects him as the promised Messiah, though religious scholars question his sayings and his account of the resurrection, though academics claim that his followers are alternately blind, foolish, or even stupid, still, this Jesus comes for you. He has never stopped. Through his death and resurrection, he opens the way to eternal life and he brings you into his kingdom. Not by power and might, but by mercy and love and his own life. Buried with him in baptism, he raises you to new life. And until that day return, when he returns, he will lead you like a shepherd throughout the wilderness, in the darkness, in every catacomb of life on every path and every road in this world. Yet how do you walk in the way of the kingdom? Particularly, how do you, rate, how do you relate to the civil authorities of this world? That's a challenge. Consider what happened when those early Christians decided to come out, out of those catacombs, out of the darkness, and into the light, what did they see? Can you imagine how difficult it must have been to believe in Jesus and live in Rome? You come out of that catacomb and into the light, and for miles you are surrounded with nothing but roads leading to a Roman Empire. You live in the midst of power. You live in the midst of this mighty army. How do you live in this empire as a Christian? How could you live in one world knowing that you are a citizen of another? That's the question Paul attempts to answer in Romans 13 today. Because God, he reveals God's greater plan for you, not only you who live by his mercy, but you who honor his power, not the power of the world. Paul learned this difficult lesson on the road himself. He learned it on another road, a road that led to Damascus, when he was blinded and had this vision of Jesus coming to him. And now in this letter, Paul is sharing that wisdom learned on another road with the earliest Christians in the heart of an empire that they are standing at looking on the road around them. Paul offers words that reveal God, how God rules in this world and rules over all things. Whether you're walking on the roads in Rome or whether you're walking in downtown San Antonio, no matter what road you walk on, you are still a child of God. You respect God's authority and his power to rule this world. You rejoice in his mercy even as you share his acts of love with others in this world. It's what we are called to do. Paul encourages the Roman Christians and us by reading and hearing this today to see God's authority behind the power of Rome. They were to respect Roman rulers then. We are to respect rulers today. Not because they were powerful then, not because they're powerful today, but because in some strange way, they too are servants of God. At the time Paul wrote this letter, Nero publicized his rule, claiming to be the dawn of a golden age. 
He saw himself early on as one who promoted peace. Well, we know Nero was nothing peaceful about Nero. Rumors were, though, privately, that his mother had poisoned Claudius, her husband and uncle, so that Nero, or that he could secure the throne for her son. Nero even joked about this, about this poisoning, saying Claudius became a god by eating a mushroom. And then going, why use a sword when a mushroom will do the same job? And there were a whole lot of suspicions about authorities in the empire in those days. Suspicions of assassinations, of conspiracy, of the fearful use of power. We don't have any of that today, do we? No. We've outgrown all that. We've learned our lessons. Nero pictured himself as one who promoted peace, and when Seneca offered an essay of Nero on mercy, he celebrated the fact that Nero had collectively sheathed his sword. Prophecy said that that region was in the dawn, dawning of a golden age of peace. And even a poem about a child who comes home from working in the field and he stands in the house of his father and he sees this sword sheathed on the wall and he marvels at it because he no longer needs a sword. His father doesn't need the sword to fight for peace. There's peace in Rome, thanks to Nero. What the public heard about Nero is that he had hidden his sword, but privately, what they whispered about Nero really revealed their fears of him, their darkest fears. Now imagine the difficulty that that posed for the Christians in Rome. How do you relate to civil authorities when publicly they say one thing and privately they do a totally different thing? Thank goodness we don't have to experience that today. I'm joking. How do, you how do you obey as a Christian when it seems like the rulers you're asked to obey are obscured by the propaganda so you never know what's true and what isn't? Oh, thank God we don't have to go through that today. The question today is as relevant to Christians today as it was to those people in Rome. Look at your political landscape today. Look at the struggle of Christians here in our own country and those being martyred in third world countries. Some authorities and some Christians, let's face it, today refuse to have anything to do with politics. They're all a bunch of crooks, some of our own Christians say. Some of our own Christians withdraw from the political world, withdraw from the responsibilities they have as citizens because politics are corrupt and they don't want to have anything to do with it. And still others, these are the real tough ones. Still other Christians, alleged Christians, they want to use the political realm to create a Christian nation. Turning away from God's gift of the church, where God gathers his people through the proclamation of the gospel, they turn to the nation. They want the nation to take the place of the church, to proclaim the gospel from political offices, and to enforce God's word through the power of the world. We are witnessing that every bit today. Do not think otherwise. Now, Paul could easily have spoken like one of those propagandists, but he didn't. He could have argued for obedience to rulers because of their character or because they somehow showed some mercy. 
or because they had sheathed their sword. But Paul anchors Christian obedience not on something as temporary and as fleeting as a person in the office or the office or the laws of this world or of any supposed empire. Paul anchors obedience on something as powerful and as eternal as God. Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Paul turns the eyes of early Christians, and prayerfully us, from the realm of Rome to the realm of God. They and we are to see the present authorities are masks of God. Mask of God. Offices that God has established to rule in this world. Though Nero's propaganda encouraged people to think he had sheathed his sword, Paul claims that God gave him that sword in the first place and that he does not bear it in vain. Whether he believes or he doesn't believe, he is a servant of God placed in authority. Some offices and authority hold to test God's people today, right in our own country, driving us deeper and deeper into the experience of faith so that Christians believe in the midst of persecution and confess the faith in the midst of a world of contempt. Others offer public witness, honoring God by their words, seeking to impose and serve Him through their actions. Our relationship to these authorities, however, is not based on their person. Our relationship is based on God's work. Not the people in the office. Not the power of the world. But the mercy and power of God. Within their offices, we see the power of God establishing order for all the people of the world. They have been given the power to restrain evil, to promote order for all people. And sometimes they use it wisely, and we've seen a whole lot on TV today where sometimes they don't use it at all. But that does not diminish their office. In fact, God has established the civil authorities not to save people, but to care for them. Paul's words in Christians encourage Christians to see how God can work through civil authorities. Rewarding good, restraining evil, forming a society of peace where his people can gather and the word may be proclaimed. Honoring to honor is not to give blindly. Respect is not paid indiscriminately. Christians follow rulers not based on political propaganda or dreams of establishing some earthly kingdom for God. No, that's not why we follow. We recognize God has established the kingdom already in his son, Jesus Christ. Through the gospel, God has called you into that kingdom. And though this world and Satan himself are fighting against it, that kingdom will never be taken away. Luther caught that in, in a mighty fortress. They cannot win the day. Verse 4. When you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
in the catacombs of this life, Jesus is with you. Like that early Christian fresco of Jesus, the Good Shepherd, through him you live, in him you die, and by him you are raised to eternal life. So as you walk through the streets of this world, you have to also be aware, aware of another working of God. Because God has established offices and he uses them to create civil order and foster the public good. So power is recognized. Obedience is given. But it is not recognized and given blindly or stupidly but faithfully as we seek to do good, to avoid evil, and to honor these rulers as ministers of God. The God who rules the church in mercy also rules over all. Therefore, as Christians, we trust in God's mercy for our salvation, and we live in the faithful obedience to civil authorities, knowing, knowing, and trusting in God. For God has instituted them to be those authorities. But God himself has all authority in this world and the next. Think of it as two kingdoms. Martin Luther talks about two kingdoms. Kingdom of the world, Coromundo. Kingdom of heaven, Coromdeo. In the world, we are to obey our leaders, the appointed civil leaders. We are to do the Ten Commandments. We are to use our righteousness actively in the world, doing good works. But none of that gets us to heaven. We already have that place, Quorum Deo. Our righteousness there is passive. We do good works as fruits of our faith that got us heaven through Christ Jesus, who died on the cross. God rules both worlds. We follow. We love, we trust. We end up here. No matter what happens here. Stay faithful. Amen.